Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to share with you an amazing opportunity that we just learned about. Uh, we happen to be doing this week's episode on Romano Guardini's Spirit of the Liturgy, and Adoramus Bulletin just asked authors from all over the world to write about different chapters in this book. This week, we're talking about chapter two, as told by Father Cashin Folsom, a Benedictine monk from Narcha, and chapter two is about the fellowship of liturgy. So that's what we're talking about today. But we just found out about this great company called Catholic Faith Journeys that has a pilgrimage available with Father Folsom as the spiritual guide. It sounds fantastic. They have other pilgrimages available, but this one would be in September, and you get to stay with the monks of Norcia and then travel all around Italy. It'd be an amazing opportunity for any of you, but especially those priests out there that listen to the podcast. I think you guys would really enjoy this. So if you want to go on a trip or you want to create a custom pilgrimage, you can go to catholicfaithjourneys.com slash guys. Maggie or Teresa would be happy to answer all your questions and make sure you ask them about the virtual pilgrimage, which is such an amazing idea. So without further ado, episode 33 of season two of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. So, uh... I have an Agnes story. You do? Yeah. Uh, I think I told you this already, Dennis, but Chris, I think you will enjoy it. Uh, you have plenty of Lars uh, Lawrence stories of your own, but Agnes, uh, my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, we were at Mass on, on this past Sunday, and for whatever reason, you know, the parking lot was really full, so we had to park down the street, and then we got in a little late, and then we didn't get to sit where we usually sit. And anyway, we're at the part of the Mass during the consecration, and, uh, you know, I wanted to show Agnes, you know, Jesus is up there, not only on the crucifix above the altar, but then, you know, on the altar in the priest and on the altar in, in, the, in the Eucharist as well. And so I was trying to, you know, point, oh, look, you know, there's Jesus up there. And she was kind of, you know, peeking her head around, trying to get a good view and get a good vantage point, but she couldn't see. And, and it's right during the elevation of the Eucharist, so it's very quiet. <laughs> and she decides to say, I, I can't see Jesus. There are too many people here. <laughs> How's that for a commentary on individualism versus collective uh, worship? And of there? course, everybody around just starts laughing. But I, you know, I was just like, "Well, maybe you're not looking at Jesus inside of all of those people, Agnes. <laughs> Get rid of all these people; they're in in the way of my prayer." Uh, I, had, I actually I had a similar type of story from Lars. Mm-hmm. This was um, how old is Lars now? Uh, Lars is five. Oh. Uh, Chris calls his son Lars, even though it, his name is Lawrence. Lawrence. It's, it's kind of weird, but yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway. He calls his wife Mars. Mars. Yeah. Yeah, even though Mar- her name is Marguerite. Well, yeah. She's from Mars, and, and Chris, Chris is from Venus. Venus. <laughs> Mars is the Roman god of war. Yeah. Yeah. So oh, well, then that, that makes it. a lot of sense. Yeah, but she's a loving it. goddess. Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, the reading at uh, this Mass was when these uh, Greeks wanted to come see Jesus. And so they go and they ask Philip, say, they say, hey, we want to see Jesus. And so uh, Philip and Andrew go and tell this to Jesus. And Jesus looks at them and says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground of die and dies, it remains just a single grain. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And we're like, 
we're just imagining what these Greeks were thinking. You know, well, we we just you know wanted to see just Jesus, to and, now, and now you're going mm-hmm. on about this great wheat thing. <laughs> and the lesson we came to was that uh, what Jesus is telling them: if you want to see Jesus, it will be on the cross, is what he's telling them. And, uh-huh. and Lars, and so I said, to, uh, I asked Lars, so where is it, Lars, that you see Jesus? Everybody can see Jesus on the cross. Unless somebody's standing in your way, mm. <laughs> so. and Lawrence you got and Agnes of, got some is, insight. That then you got out of his way. Brilliant, yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't get in his way. Yeah, don't get in your way. Okay. So, what do you want to talk about today? But this, this is the suitable intro because it's about how individuals go to the liturgy and participate in it with other people. That uh, uh, liturgy is the basis for changing the world because it gives lessons in how you retain your individual integrity and excellence and creativity and creation from the hands of God, but at the same time, how that individuality uh, joins with other individuals in an act of corporate worship. All right. Yes. So uh, with this... uh, You had me at hello, Chris. Now let's go. This, this is inspi- I didn't have you, a, I have an Agnes story? No. <laughs> okay. This is inspired by uh, Romano Gardini in his book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. Yes. We did an episode and about several of those chapters, season one, right? We, I think we did on chapter three, but this is, uh, this is the 100th anniversary of The Spirit of the Liturgy, so it's oh. getting a lot of attention. The original this year. spirit of the The original. Yeah. He was a graduate student when he wrote that book. Can you believe that? He wasn't even a professor yet. So Pope Benedict's going to get the new originals. And then, and then Dennis's panel. book is the second. But Gordini right. stole the title from a guy named Caronti. Yeah, I heard that. Spirit Do you have that book? I've never read it, but I, mm. it came first. Okay. Well, this uh, in the Adoramus Bulletin, which uh, is something I'm involved with. If you're you called this, the editor. I'm called the editor of, yes. So we, we've, uh, we've asked uh, uh, authors to comment on each of these chapters. And Father Cassian Folsom, who's a Benedictine monk from... Norcia. Uh, Norcia in Italy. This is the birthplace. Oh, that's, yeah, of, that's the one with the, they had the earthquake, and, mm-hmm. but they yes. make beer, so that's yes. cool. Yes, yes. This it. is the birthplace of St. Benedict, and this is where the Benedictine monastery is. Well, he, he uh, examined this chapter uh, two, which is called The Fellowship of the Liturgy, and it's on this question exactly. How do I, the individual, participate with you all, the community, in the liturgy. Not well is what I would say so far. Yeah, well, what, yeah, I what agree, he, you need to be better at that. What uh, Gardini says, actually, uh, I think this came up in the last podcast, it takes, the liturgy is kind of a school, and Gardini says, if you want to participate in the liturgy, you have to come to my school, and you have to learn some things if you want to participate in it. Because there's different, what, uh, what, what Father Cassian and Romana Gardini do is they talk about different uh, temperaments, right? So, each person has his or her own temperament, characteristics, uh, virtues, vices. So there's all the, the rest. leave me alone at the sign of peace temperament, and there's hug me and kiss me at the sign of peace oh, temperament. Oh, Dennis, you are nailing this. Bam. And you and Romano Gardini and Father Cassian are, are just spot on here. Right? See, but you can't just say, this is how you do it, and give, one, give like a one-size-fits-all formula for how to participate in liturgy, because... Not everybody's the same. Some people do like to hug. Other people don't like to hug. Right? Every time I give you a hug, you just stiffen <sighs> like a board. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. So what I want to do is uh, Gardini, through Father Cassian Folsom, offers three different liturgical temperaments. Three, three, three. Okay? And there's probably more Liturgical, than that. liturgical. Temperaments, temperaments. Temperament. But uh, I'm going to read a, a little description. <laughs> 
I don't like your temperament right now. Okay? I'm going to read a description, and you tell me uh, if this suits you or not. And then see what uh, Gardini and Father Cashew do is they offer um, what sacrifice that person has to make, mm. what they have to do. This is what... Don't uh, tell me what to do. What he, yeah, I know. I can tell which uh, temperament you're fitting into. Modern so they have to sacrifice some things, but then they have to do some sort of personal action to kind of change their behavior so that they and foster a particular virtue so that they can okay. succeed. Temperament so, number one. Temperament number one. Let's call it the aloof temperament. That's definitely me. Well, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. This person has an individual temperament, and he or she is drawn to objective and impersonal thinking. He's concerned with ideas, mm -hmm. the ordering of things, mm -hmm. objectives, laws, mm -hmm. rules, tasks to be done, rights, and duties. You might call this an Apollonian personality. Or a Magnumarian personality. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's how you see yourself? Not really, no. Okay. That's how I do. That's how that's I how see I, But I like the objectivity of the liturgy to be objective, yeah. so it yeah. would make me look like I'm like that. But yeah. in my heart, I'm not quite. Yeah. Like well, you know, just like... Um, I think this is right. When we did that last podcast, there, there's, there's little grains of truth in all of this, right? But when, um, when that becomes the overarching or principal way of looking at the liturgy or acting, well, then you're going to start stop seeing other things. So you're right. There's a good, healthy appreciation yeah. for the objective character. Of there's the a real Scandinavian twinkle in your eye when you talk about oh, this, Chris. I love it. I know. Love it. Okay. Here is the second one. Then we'll go back and revisit what, mm -hmm. what each... We'll see if we can pin each of us in here, all right? Uh, the second one is called the introverted liturgical temperament. Okay? Mm -hmm. So for this person, is also kind of individualistic, but he is drawn to subjective expressions and feelings focuses, focus, his feelings focus on his own internal sentiments and intimate Ooh. feelings. He perceives the community as a broad fabric of personal affinities and interwoven reciprocal relationships. I don't even know what that means. See, this is interesting because when I, you would think that the, the first one would be the introvert, right? Leave me alone. Yeah, when thought. you said introvert, I was like, is this like but, one part two? But the introversion of the second guy is that he's not willing to give up his own preference, so he wants it his way. And so the introvert wants to feel his own feelings and not engage with other people's feelings. Right? right. The first guy is individualistic, but he sees it kind of the, the, the worshiping assembly or community as kind of this big concrete objective social uh, order, mm -hmm. okay, where everything's in its place and it all fits together. Whereas the second guy is individualistic, but he doesn't really care about any of that other stuff. He only cares about what yeah. is his this own is, internal. So Myers Briggs letters going on here. Some I'm, IT. I, I am ninety percent sure I am in category three. Whatever the heck that is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you are too. <laughs> what is it, Chris? The third one. Let's call the gregarious mm -hmm. uh, liturgical temperament. This is most music directors. So this person uh, has more of a social temperament. Uh, and he eagerly and consistently craves fellowship, automatically seeks out congenial associates, presses towards togetherness, but in a way that's foreign to the nature of the liturgy. Hmm. Dang it. Is that you? It sounds like it, this I guess. This would be like the 1990s therapeutic model of liturgy, right? I like oh, number one, yes. though, too. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely in number one. Maybe for the sake of the podcast, we'll just say I'm like you're a, number three. I'm like a three. I'm like a three one, three one two. That's the order for me. Yeah. Which one do you see yourself as, Dennis? I'm definitely a one. Definitely a not one. much of a three. Not much of a three. But you know, in real life, I'm a kind of a. Two yeah, in real life, three. you're. A, but in, yeah. I mean, outside you're of surgical life, yes, yeah. aren't we okay. all? So you're like a one two three. I'm easy as one two three. Well, Chris, you know, 
Which one it? are you? Oh, I'm number one. You're, yeah, and, number and one. For sure? Yeah, pretty sure. What's your secondary and tertiary? Uh, number two, introverted. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then three last. So you, yeah. you guys are the same then. But I bet mm-hmm. this is the basic argument that happens in a lot of suburban parishes, right? You have a bunch of threes running things, and then you get a one come in as your new pastor, and boy, is it a mistake. Or you have a tradi- more traditional parish that that's kind of a one cli- climate, and then a three comes in as pastor. See, but the thing is, if you, if you want a handful of number ones, aloof people, and a handful of number twos, introverted people, and a handful of number threes, gregarious people, each of them has to sacrifice something, and each of them has to do something different. If we're all going to get together and perform a corporate act of worship, then everyone has something to give up and something to foster. All right, let's start with the things that number ones have to give up. Okay, so this is what he says, number one, the aloof temperament has to do. Uh, He needs to renounce his own ideas and his own spiritual preferences, to submit to the ideas of the liturgy, to surrender his independence and pray with others, to obey liturgical norms instead of freely disposing of himself, and to stand in the ranks. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's what number two, the introvert. Oh, wait, number one. it, It surprised me because I would presume that number one is the person who follows the liturgical norms, but what he's actually talking about is someone who kind of makes up their own liturgical norms and won't do the things even that the liturgy asks to do and does that his own way. Huh? Yeah, no, no I, think, uh, I think you're right because you would think that the number one would automatically plug into just what uh, the books say. But I think you can, uh, you can confuse that, that um, really I'm doing that not because the church has given me that in the liturgy, but because it's more motivated by my own so say, uh, outlook on things. Say I don't like kneeling at the Eucharistic prayer. I can just say, well, I have come to my own intellectual reason why you should stand during the Eucharistic prayer and the rubrics don't matter and I stand, right? So you would say oh, it's a highly intellectualized version, but it's still a refusal to follow the rubrics. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Uh, number two has to sacrifice this. He must, uh, let's see, in order for him to fellowship, uh, to, to participate. Or, or her. Or her, yeah, yeah. Uh, he needs to renounce, or she needs to renounce, his, or her, sorry, spiritual <laughs> isolation, to share uh, his existence with other people, to share with others the intimacy of his inner life and feelings, and these not just of the people he likes, but even those people he doesn't like. Oh. You know? So this is the introverted uh, liturgical temperament needs to sacrifice that kind of privacy of the inner life and needs to open up a little bit and share that with others. Ooh, that's got to be difficult for that person. Well, hey, it's this, the thing is, this is going to be difficult for every person. Yeah. Yeah, whatever, always, whatever your temperament is, you've got to give something. Mine's going to be easy. Be. Let's find out. But always according to the norms of the liturgy, right? Not just whatever you feel like. So you're introverts, you got to come out of your shell. You thinkers, you got to feel more, not just according to any old model, but as the liturgy asks. Well, that's true. It. You don't want to go from the introverted to the gregarious. I mean, you're just uh, you're going from one era to another. But there's, there's correctives uh, that, that each has to, has to have. Right. So the pastor who says, turn to your neighbor and say hello, is probably oozing into the gregarious uh, thing here, right? The sacrifice that the gregarious Jesse Weiler needs to do. I don't like that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Must make in order to participate in fellowship is different from the others. He must accept the boundaries the liturgy imposes on togetherness. Yes. He must realize that in the liturgy, the union of members is not directly accomplished from one person to another, but is accomplished by and in their joint aim and spiritual resting place in God. Yes. Uh, So what does that mean? That means everybody together has a relationship with God, and by that action, they actually have a relationship with each other. Yeah, the the union is not kind of a... 
simple, emotive human thing, as you say. It, it's, it's union first with God, and through that union, it's with other people. I think he mentions in this chapter another one that in the liturgy, people almost never talk to each other. I mean, now the sign of peace they do, but for the most part, you don't say anything to the people next to you. You answer the priest almost exclusively. Hmm. Oh, I didn't really think yeah, about so that. So the, the head becomes the that. point of unity of all the members. Okay. Oh. Yeah, back to this uh, gregarious then. The, the formality of the liturgy produces a certain restraint and a reciprocal reverence. So you can never force your intimacy on another. <laughs> you can never force your own characteristics, feelings, perceptions on the rest of the assembly. Oh, I remember when back in the 90s when I was in graduate school and they had this loosey-goosey university parish. They used to open up all the intercessions to the whole church, you know. And you're like, for my daughter, Martha, who's undergoing gallbladder surgery this week and whose husband that just lost his job and the son got hit by a car, pray to the Lord. And we're just like, oh, man, come on. Find my granddaughter a husband. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it was from the other side of the church. You couldn't hear what they were saying. And it just, it opened it up to this kind of false intimacy. Were they forcing the intimacy upon you? Uh, yeah. And it was a big distraction from the liturgy, too. We could have just said for all the sick and unemployed, and it would have been great. I would say that uh, prior to my encounter with the Liturgical Institute through working here and all, and all of that, I, I would say that prior to that, I would have been a strong three, Gregorius. Right? But you know, now understanding some of, the, some of these things, especially through our conversations, I definitely see different aspects mm -hmm. of my temperament in Mass fitting into each one mm -hmm. of those different situations because sometimes I am like that like no I want it this way and this is the way that it needs to be and, and then in other ways I want everybody on board in togetherness let me leave you with one other thing then oh, so each of that. these three temperaments right he's described them he's talked about what each of those must sacrifice but he offers to each one the virtue that must be cultivated Ooh. if this Ooh. individual is going to participate with the community so the first one the aloof uh, a liturgical temperament that sees things very according to law, his own laws and objectives, his outlook, uh, must cultivate the virtue of humility. Mm -hmm. He must renounce self-rule and self-sufficiency, accept the principles of the liturgy, overcome pride and intolerance, and assimilate an entire system of communal aims and ideas. Okay, so yeah, humility guys, for the first. You None do. of these are as easy as they sound, right? If you're really They're committed and used to something, it's hard to give it up. Humility is easy for me because I'm good at that. Yeah, you're the most humble person <laughs> okay. I know. Yeah. The second one, for the introverted uh, temperament, the virtue that she must uh, foster is uh, charity because she needs that great and wonderful love which is ready to participate in the life of others hmm. versus himself, herself. And Jesse over here, mm -hmm. number three. Gosh. I can do this. Talk about a litany of uh, things. <laughs> uh, that one's got like three pages. <laughs> Your threeness is showing, Jesse. <laughs> the, uh, the virtue of the gregarious liturgical temperament is reserve or restraint. Mm -hmm. It is this reserve alone which, in the end, makes fellowship in the liturgy possible. But for it, togetherness would be unendurable. Oh, my goodness. You ever That's kind of uh, the, um, there's hum humility there, too. But, you know, I'm, I must decrease so that yeah, the you're right. must yeah. increase. Like, and yeah. so, the, you know, I think of it, too, as uh, music is really important to me. So sometimes I'm a little maybe louder than I should be. And, you know, having that restraint so that we can have one unified voice instead of just mm -hmm. a few people really belting it out. And same, same thing with speaking out as well, uh, the responses, to make sure that we sound like one voice rather than 
somebody trying to prove that they know the words to the uh, creed like I sometimes do. Those are great, those are great examples. And I yeah. think the idea of the next level up on the flowchart here is not just have everybody get along in the pews. It's you're all supposed to become members of the mystical body. And if your individual preferences are getting in the way of that, they've got to go. You've got to be conformed to Christ and not just yourself. And when you act as the mystical body, then you have intimate union with Christ. Then you're offered on the altar as Christ is offered on the altar. And then you have access to God the Father. Then you draw from the wellspring of all eternal life, which is God the Father, which is kind of amazing, right? So it's not just Gregarious number three's shut up and number one's, you know, mm -hmm. obey the rubrics. It's do all this so you can be filled with divine life. And that's always the answer. You know, it's funny, even the, even the number three, the Gregorius person is still, even though that they're, fo even though they're focused on the group community mm -hmm. mentality, they're still being selfish and individualistic because of their preference, yeah. um, which is, it's kind of funny. Right. There's a, also somewhere in this chapter too, which I could have stood to look up before that. He, he, mm -hmm. just, he talks yeah. about, you know, you, a necessary ingredient for the liturgy is humility. It's giving up yeah, your own preferences, preferences uh, and submitting would be the word that he would use. But submitting to when the, the formative power of the church. What about when the liturgical choices kind of stink and they tell you, well, Jesus is still there. And you really want to say, hey, you know, that's not a very good song or that's not bringing out the nature of the liturgy very much. Are you supposed to surrender your will to bad choices? Mm. Your two-ness is showing. <laughs> that's my oneness. Oh, right. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oneness. No, uh, Good liturgical choices. So, as I see it, you ha you have people trying to engage on the one hand, and then you have a liturgical celebration on the other, and both of those things need need to work. You can have a great celebration, and the people don't care. That's not going to get anything done. Or you can have people ready and humble and willing to participate. But and true, there's an objective nature to the liturgy. But if the the celebration is lackluster and it's not uh, inspiring and grace-filled and communicative of grace, then that's not going to be as efficacious either. So both of those things need to be yeah. go kind of hand in glove. So the ones need to show up and be like, whoosh, hey, follow the rubrics. The twos need to say, hey, this is not a lifeless set of rubrics alone, but a set of emotion and importance. You know, that salvation is mm -hmm. important to me. The threes have to show up and say, I love you. <laughs> so the ones well, say, I think well, about you. Well, the twos less. say, I feel you. See, the threes already are saying, yeah. I love you, I love you, I love you. But He's their like, contribution okay, is... They need a, to show up and shut up is what they need to do. <laughs> He's talking about their excesses, but actually, you know, when their excesses mm -hmm. are dialed back, they're all important parts of, yeah. of the liturgy yeah. as well. So I wouldn't want to just say the... None of these matter, right? Law matters. Love matters. Expression of emotion matters, but always under the control of the normative uh, nature of the liturgy. And I think we can all agree that the best temperament is number three. So We love you, Jesse. <laughs> hey, group hug. I follow my own rules on hugging. <laughs> all right. Uh, liturgy question? What do you guys think? Yes, Should no? Should we answer yeah. it as ones, twos, or threes? Let's answer it as, as fours. Four. Actually, one plus two plus three is six, so let's answer it as sixes. I don't Bring know them all that. together. All right, sure. We'll three of us together would we'll be six. We'll see how six. this goes. <laughs> no. Hey guys, before we get to the liturgy question, I want to remind you about Catholic Faith Journeys. There's actually a pilgrimage coming up very soon with Father Cash and Folsom. This is Italy in the footsteps of St. Benedict. It's from September 18th through the 28th. 
uh, you start off by spending four nights with the monks in Norcia, which is just beautiful. It's amazing. And then you travel around Italy. You hit all the really great spots, Assisi, Subiaco, Rome, Vatican, all of that. And this pilgrimage is a spiritual retreat led by Father Folsom. And if you're interested, contact Maggie McDaniel. You can call her at 419-290-8782 or go to catholicfaithjourneys.com slash liturgyguys. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Jesse, do you have a question for us? I do have a question. Is it from Rudiger? This is from six. This is from Todd. Okay, Todd number one. Todd on Twitter. Todd says, uh, his question is, how to communicate to older Catholics that praise and worship bands are needed and liturgical even when an organist is available? Interesting question here, Chris. Well, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a false question there, right? How do you communicate to older people that they need to do something they don't want to do or that the church doesn't foresee? So I, I wouldn't say that that's a thing you want to communicate. I think everybody has to come to the same point. Whether they're old or young middle-aged, or whatever. Like Jesse yeah. or young. Hey, Are you young? Are you I, a young adult, Jesse? I'm young. I'm definitely young. He's in I'm the forever young, young. He's in the young adult uh, demographic. The real question is, what does the church want us to do from the nature of the liturgy? So what is the nature of liturgical music, right? So in the strictest sense, liturgical music is the music based on the text of the Missal, right? The liturgy is found in the Missal, and therefore the music that is set to the words of the liturgy is the most liturgical music, right? So you sing the Gloria because it's the text of the Mass. You can substitute some other song that's kind of like the Gloria, but it's not the Gloria. And so sing the communion antiphon ideally before some other pious Eucharistic hymn or some other hymn that's not Eucharistic at all, right? So the idea is what does the church want us to know, do, speak, proclaim, sing, perceive, understand, and be motivated by at that moment? So that's the strict interpretation. And the, so as it moves away from liturgical texts, it becomes less and less liturgical. So you could have a Eucharistic hymn, and it's not the text of the communion antiphon of that day. It's close to being liturgical, but it's not liturgical. It's really, it starts to become a devotional hymn about a liturgical thing. And it could be played on the organ, or it could be played with a acoustic guitar. With a band. Yeah, so not, that's not to say those two instruments are e- equally relevant or ir- irrelevant, but um, that those are secondary to, to answering the question, right. I think. The, the thing about a band at all, well, first of all, the, the distinction between devotional music and liturgical music is very important because a lot of music that comes out of the Protestant tradition, if they don't have a liturgical book, properly speaking, they don't have liturgical music, right? They have music that they sing at their worship, but it really comes out of, of a devotional tradition about me and Jesus or my heart or my suffering or whatever. And so there's lovely tradition of hymnody, say in the Baptist tradition, which is very emotional, it's very personal, it's very me and Jesus, which is what they do. But to just say, okay, well, suddenly that's liturgical music in the Catholic tradition is not really, it's not an, it's not an apples to oranges kind of thing. Liturgical music has a character. It's addressed to God, it's about God, it's from God, and it's connected to the text of the Mass itself. But the Catholics also have a devotional music tradition as well. So you can do a big, long praise festival with adoration all night long and lock the kids in the gym and all those things that they do. You know, I wouldn't call that a long tradition, but, <laughs> but, right. but that's the thing about devotion. It doesn't ha- even have to be 
a long tradition. It, your, your devotional expression can be brand new tomorrow. I mean, obviously it has to right. be consonant with the faith and things like that. You can write your own song tonight if you want. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's, it's when we, I think that's the right distinction when we, when we confuse those things that everything devotional has, is equally at home in the liturgy as things that are liturgical that um, we're not seeing the liturgy the way the church does. Right. So if you have someone in this corner as a Gregorian chant does the best, this corner, well, worship, praise and worship music is the best. And then say they can't meet. No, well, liturgical music is done at liturgical times. Devotional music is done at devotional times. Sometimes there's a little overlap, you know. Uh, and liturgically, you can have a Eucharistic hymn. That's not text from the Mass, but it's related to what you're doing at that moment. And so sometimes they do wind up in both places. But properly speaking, liturgical music is different in its character. And it shouldn't draw attention to itself. So the rock band thing is not just because we don't like modern stuff. It's but if the rock music was invented to look at the musician, hear the musician, you don't even care about the words, right? It's the guy swinging the guitar around in his tight clothes. Think of Mick Jagger, right? That's the most unliturgical musical <laughs> production as you can imagine. So if the music production takes precedence over the words that are sung, then that's a problem. If they are visually more distracting than they should be, that's a problem. So the question is, does it fit the liturgy? Is it liturgical in its, in its nature, in its text, and what it says, and how it um, interacts with the ritual action? Those are the things that matter. All right, Todd, I hope that answers your question. And if you want to ask us a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com, or you can tweet us now. That's the thing that we're doing. Nice. So thank you, and God bless. I guess I better get Twitter on my phone. Then. You should. Okay. Yeah, you should tweet. Chris, you're a lost cause. <laughs> the Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.